welcome to this latest edition of the Visual and Tones podcast. This is going to be a very brief edition. Uh, today I want to talk about allyship, but I'm coming from a more little historic background so I can pay voice so you understand where the so-called allyship is um, going. Recently, what is happening in Australia is that voice to parliament passed the National Assembly, meaning in the, couple of, in the next couple of months, probably six months, it'll be sent to citizens who'll be voting on it. Now, I know there's a number of people who might be asking, what is voice to parliament? And I know very well that I try not to sort of do very space-specific or context-specific type of work just because I want to let everybody in. But I think that is why I want to speak more about allyship, which is where everybody fits in as opposed to little information on voice to parliament. But I'll touch on a little bit on voice to parliament so that I can give a bit of a context for my listeners. Voice to parliament comes from the Uluru statement from the heart. And the statement from the heart has three pillars, which first is voice to parliament, basically meaning the Aboriginal community from the different territories in Australia, uh, including those who are in Tasmania. They'll actually have a body that will serve. They'll elect a body that will serve as an advisory team to National Assembly pertaining to issues that concerns Aboriginal people. They are just an advisory body. Secondly, the second pillar is a treaty, which a treaty was attempted before, but it actually fell off. But a treaty basically proposes that a group of Aboriginal people have to serve, have to make the final or the actual decisions which pertains to governance around the Aboriginal people. So that's the two distinctions. The one is more of an advisory body, which is voice to parliament, and then the other one is more of the actual body that makes the final decisions uh, or makes decisions about you know issues of governance around the Aboriginal community. And then the third one is basically uh, truth-telling. Um, obviously... Statement of the statement from the heart, or even voice to parliament in itself, has had a lot of pushbacks, not just between Aboriginal people and non-Aboriginal people, but also within the Aboriginal community, you know, itself. And whether the kind of a pushback from some people really comes from a genuine heart, or it comes from um, what one might call hustling. Um, from the opposition, I, 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 I don't think it's in my place to say that. I, I don't think it's in my place to try articulate anything about that. But all I can say is that there is a bit of a pushback even within the Aboriginal community. And part of the pushback has to do with the fact that this elders who are concerned that voice to parliament will sort of undermine their sovereignty or the sovereignty of the elders and the structures of the Aboriginal community. But at the same time, there are some who are concerned about the fact that voice to parliament would add a certain layer into the democracy and the constitution of the Australian uh, people. Where else adding a layer is basically adding a certain level of bureaucracy, which they are not sort of 
um, keen to have a certain level of bureaucracy. But there's many other issues that are involved in terms of the pushbacks and the agreements and so on and so forth. But this is what I want you to get, is the fact that even within the Aboriginal communities, there's different perspectives. They are not all in, you know, synced in terms of the idea of uh, voice to parliament. And this is because perhaps some are more in favor of uh, treaty, um, whereas some might really not be for anything that is within, you know, the Uluru Statement from the Heart. But that also in itself is something that might need to be looked at. It's a, it's a, it's a sort of a sloppy thing to say when I say some might not be because I haven't got any particular evidence of that. But I'm saying this in a sense that generally, and I speak out of correction, generally it is possible to find that certain people might not really be, you know, interested in any political contestation. This is possible even within, you know, the black race. You may find some people don't really give a hoot about what is happening in terms of whether there's racism or no racism. Some are not even having any energy to try to contest issues around racism. They just feel like their lives are perfect. Or some may feel like contesting ideas of racism is overcomplicating this thing. And the more that happens, the more resistance towards racial conversation would exist and so on and so forth. But that's basically on that premise that I'm making that particular argument. Now, I took to Instagram one day a post which I didn't commentate on it. I didn't make any commentation on it. I just took the post and I reposted it on the podcast page, which actually was talking about how a certain university in Australia, if my memory still serves me well, a certain university in Australia was advocating for voice to parliament. And there's a friend who approached me right there on Instagram asking me whether I was for voice to parliament. Um, and of which for me, I took the question in the most casual way. This is a friend I respect. Nothing harmful can come out of this. Perhaps I can respond, but I wasn't aware that I'm sort of putting myself, I'm setting myself up for a little um a little longer engagement or a shorten shorter engagement doesn't really matter but point is i was setting myself out there for an engagement which perhaps it shouldn't be happening to cut a long story short that conversation and my response to say i am acting as an ally for those who've put emotion on the table and I was confronted with questions such as, but am I aware of those who are not in support of voice to parliament? And I said, I'm pretty much aware. But the thing is at this moment, there's nothing on the table from the other party. So perhaps what is on the table is something that I can say maybe it's on the basis of talking about it. But again, I kept on reiterating in that particular conversation that Really, this is not my space to set off talk more because I haven't got any ancestral experience. I haven't got any ancestral knowledge of the Aboriginal communities. I may possess a certain ancestral knowledge from the black community and the black experience being a South African, 
having grandparents who actually suffered under the apartheid regime. But that does not necessarily mean I have to take those experiences from the other side of the world and use them, you know, in this particular context. It is not my place. However, the conversation degenerated to Ed Harmon and, and, you know, things about my blackness at some point were reiterated and statements such as because I do work on race and racism, therefore I project myself as though I am the one who should be talking about this. This is regardless of the fact that I said it is not my place. But I guess the friend was trying to sort of point out the fact that perhaps I should not engage in this conversation because there are other Aboriginal people who are against voice to parliament. And of which I was sort of mistaken in that conversation in a sense that I asked this particular friend her ethnicity and, and she's white, but I was doing that because for those who understand the complexities of, you know, Australia and the history of Australia, it, it is possible to come across a white person, um, a fair-skinned person who's of Aboriginal descent. But I didn't want to sort of appear as a fool. So I asked a friend um, of her lineage and of which it went the wrong direction. Instead of that understanding, it was explained, as, it was understood as me saying, because you're a white person, you shouldn't talk about this. And of which there was a bit of a pushback about how my friend has got brains. She can talk um, for herself. She does not have to have the understanding of, you know, she does not have to be Aboriginal to be able to open up her mouth and da da da, you know, all that. And I said, I don't think you're understanding me, but of which my last few messages were never sort of, um, never got any particular reply where I clarified that my questioning has to do with the fact that if she she was Aboriginal, I'm willing to take the back seat and have her educate me. But instead, it took on a different um, direction. And that was very absurd, to be very honest. Now, if you know what ad hominem, what an ad hominem is, you'll understand the fact that it is more about shifting from actual view, but playing the man, which for me, I felt like there was no need of, you know, talking about my blackness and trying to speak about my work in a space where I never really flexed nothing about, hey, I've got this accolades, I should be the one talking about it. I don't, I don't think that's a space for me. But now... I didn't take that personal, you know, um, because I think all topics about race and racism, um, they often brew a certain level of emotions from different kinds of people. Uh, perhaps for me, it could have been a great space to say, should I be engaging this person or shouldn't I be engaging this person? But again... I'm left with the question of whether race or racism and its confrontations shouldn't really be uh, raising emotions. Should it be approached in a nice way? Which, with this particular question, I'm 
thinking of the works of Robin D'Angelo, who recently released a book titled Nice Racism, which she actually points out the fact that very often the presence of niceness does not suggest absence of violence. The presence of niceness does not suggest the presence of racism. And for those who know the work of Robin D'Angelo, she, in some of her commentations when she speaks on white fragility, she also mentioned the fact that it does not mean that sexism disappear when you come across a man being friends with a woman. And I know that concepts of man and woman today are very highly contested. But let's say a cisgendered man being friends with a cisgendered woman whom are both heterosexuals, it does not mean that if they become friends, therefore, sexism disappears. And in, in that, she's also suggesting the fact that the She's suggesting the fact that for a white person having a black friend, it does not necessarily mean that therefore there could be an absence of racism. And I'm thinking because such spaces might have a certain level of tolerance, but at the same time, people have to learn the fact that if, if, if I'm friends with a cisgendered woman, if she tolerates a bit of my sexism or my sexist tendencies... I do not have to go and parade it to other people. But eventually, yes, it has to stop. Same way as if a white person has a friend who is a black person, does not mean that whatever banters they might have about racial differences, therefore those banters have to be paraded in the public among other people who are different in race, but not part of that particular circle. You don't want to offend people with such things. So nice racism is exactly that. To say in a space of contestation and you say to people, be nice, be kind, it does not necessarily mean there's absence of racism. But I'm sort of degenerating. I guess here I was trying to make the point that as much as I'm conscious of the fact that topics about racism will sort of brew certain emotions from people. I also want you to sort of try find Robin D'Angelo's text and go through it. I haven't really gone through it um, to the end. I'm still sort of working on it. But the whole gist of it is the fact that there is something called nice racism, according to Robin D'Angelo. And I mean, you'll take that with her in, in, in case you disagree with that, not necessarily with me. So... Going back to my friend and how the conversation basically degenerated into me in my so-called belief that I'm being an ally when I'm supporting Voice to Parliament. The reality is that there is no display of wisdom. Um, there is nothing allyship about that because 
in the so-called act of allyship that I think I am doing, I'm overlooking the experiences of those who are Aboriginal but against voice to parliament. Sorry about that. Now, I want to point out to say this friend of mine to me was also supposedly being an ally. And I believe that she took very much to heart because to her, I mean, if one ends up going to ad hominem, to an ad hominem, you could tell that perhaps this is more hard for them to understand um, the opposition as opposed to or understand, you know, the group they are in as opposed to trying to also understand why the other person is on the other group. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Really, I don't know. But there are three things that as I looked at the situation for me, I'm like, there's something to learn here. And let me pick up my L's <laughs> and not parade myself as somebody who knows it all or somebody who thinks I can use my blackness to enter spaces and have a say about matters that I've got no knowledge about. And there's three different points that I just want to leave you with today, just from this particular engagement. Um, the first one is that I had to remember with my so-called allyship, nobody in the Aboriginal community asked me <laughs> to be an ally. Nobody. I'm not sure about my friend, but nobody asked me to be an ally. But again, I'm confronted with this thing that even if nobody asks you to be an ally, what does this mean then? If one has made the effort to read up about something and understand about something, should they not make a comment about it? Or they can make a comment, but it depends to who and where and how. Because this is the same as if somebody is to ask me about what I think about the war in Ukraine. You know, the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. So, because nobody asked me to be an ally of maybe people in Ukraine, should I refrain from talking about violence or wars that affect innocent people or because nobody tasked me to be an ally of Russia should I be silent also about what the Northern Americas and NATO might have in contribution to the conflict and that is where it becomes a little difficult Sometimes. So here I'm picking up my L's to say, remember, nobody asked you in the Aboriginal community to be a voice for them. And, and, and this is because many of activists, you know, would say it has to be bestowed over you. 
to be an ally. It's an honor. You don't just pick it up and use it anyhow. But this is a little bit tricky because on my second point, I want to bring the fact that we need to understand that there is no perfect ally. Never will one find a perfect ally. Because views often evolve, ideas often change. Um, unless if we want to suggest that allyship can be branded more by those who are loud, more loud in the contestation, then maybe. But again, we might not find perfect allyship. So here, for instance, think about the fact that within the LGBT movement in itself, you may find lesbian people who might not in full support of views of other lesbians. You might find lesbian people who might not be in agreement with the current trans narrative, and a lot of them are called, you know, transphobic. Now, in that particular case, would we say, therefore, a lesbian who is silent about trans narrative is not a perfect ally of LGBT? Are we going to force them to choose a side to be with the trans community, therefore we brand them worth of the perfect allyship status? I mean, this happens everywhere. You find it within the race contestation. It's possible to find certain black people who'd say, I don't give a damn about all this racism thing, contestations that are going all up. I just want to have a good life, a free life, be able to afford this and that. But they're not doing that through the frames of, I need to go and be an activist. If you find a black person who's not in support of the black race, Therefore, are you going to argue that they are not perfect allies? Even though they are black and are bound to be subjected to very same experiences of the one who's more loud? This is possible even within the, you know, postmodern modernist thinking. Where those scholars who once were in support of postmodernity... And now a letter silent, because if they, I let us silent about the trans narrative and the woke culture, because if they open up against those, then they might be accused of not being progressive enough. So even though they are postmodern thinkers, so who should tell us what a perfect ally is? That becomes another thorn for me. And the third point that I just want to raise is that maybe I should have not fell on my sword and responded to the question, especially if I don't know the agenda of the person who is inquiring. So for anyone who's probably thinking, I want to be in support of my sisters when it comes to you know their activism about their bodies um i want to be in support of my brothers and sisters within the lgbt 
or within the race contestation or within any particular religion and so on and so forth. I think knowing exactly what you are supporting is good. But more good is knowing that you are not obliged to hold the microphone. So whenever people ask you about the movement or ask you about what your leaning is and so on and so forth, perhaps it's good to tap out because had I tapped out of the conversation and not responded that I'd rather something that is on the table than something that's not on the table, perhaps I wouldn't have been confronted with certain ad hominem and I wouldn't probably be having this conversation in this particular fashion. Perhaps I would have been having this conversation on the basis that I think there's too many complexities happening within, you know, activism and people need to be <laughs> extra careful in a sense that sometimes the loudest doesn't really mean they're always right. They might just be loud, you know? So third point, that's the one. It's okay to not hold the microphone. Even when asked. And this is me picking up my L's basically. And I hope that these L's are L's that you can take with you. Just to quickly reiterate first, nobody asked me to be an ally. Therefore, if nobody asked you to be an ally, you need to be careful on how you engage the space, but understand also the fact that it's too complex. People might still ask you to be an ally and you become an ally. Somebody else who's also having the similar experiences, but who's not as loud as possible, might find offense. That's the first point. And the second point um, is that there's no perfect ally. That's exactly a build-up from the first point. And the third point is that it's okay to not hold the microphone. It's okay that when people ask you for your views and they say, it is not in my place. Because really, it is not in your place. And I hope this makes sense. Thanks for choosing us. Cheers.